Coming up on Nurse Talk, the GOP case against ACA's pre-existing condition protections begins. Dying at home in an opioid crisis, hospice grapples with stolen meds. The impact on health care with a conservative Supreme Court. Who gets the Square Needle Award this week? Another tough choice. All this and more today on Nurse Talk. Welcome to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with the executive producer, Patty Lockard, sitting in for Shane Mason. And Casey, we'd like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners on Progressive Voices TuneIn, the Tom Hartman Program, and all of our broadcast platforms. Patty, as per your direction, we're about to present this week's Square Needle Award, and you're telling me it's almost impossible to pick because the field of contenders is now so enormous it's overwhelming? That's right, Casey. So maybe we should try to concentrate on keeping it just in the realm of health care. You mean someone like a hospital corp CEO who makes 320 times more than a charge nurse working in that same hospital? Or maybe the heads of Eli Lilly or Express Scripts for tripling the price of insulin? Or maybe even the 20 Republican-led states who are arguing in front of the U.S. District Judge in Texas that what remains of the Affordable Care Act, which protects those with pre-existing conditions, is unconstitutional? You mean like that? Well stated, Casey. So much so that I think we can call this week's Square Needle Award Dead on arrival. I never liked that square needle word anyway. Why did we keep doing it? Because you liked it. Honestly, I never liked it. For family members struggling with addiction, bottles of pills lying around the house can be hard to resist. Sarah B., a 43-year-old construction worker in Vancouver, Washington, said when her father entered hospice care at his home in Oregon, she was addicted to opioids stemming from a hydrocodone prescription for sciatica. After he died, hundreds of pills were left on his bedside table. She took them all, enough Norco, oxycodone, and morphine to last a month. Sarah, who was one of her father's primary caretakers, said the hospice didn't talk about addiction or ask if any one of us were addicts or any of that. No one gave us instructions on how to dispose of all the medications that were left, she added. With us to talk about this dilemma is Boston-based Kaiser Health News correspondent Melissa Bailey. Melissa recently wrote an article about how hospices are struggling with opioids being stolen from hospice patients by either relatives or, in some cases, healthcare workers. Melissa, welcome to Nurse Talk Radio, and thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Sure. So before we get started, Melissa, we just want to make sure our listeners know that you wrote this article to expose the depth and the breadth of the opioid epidemic and the links that people will go to get some of these medications. It's, it's in no way an, an indictment of hospice care. Yes, that's right. Great. So your article starts with a patient that's prescribed painkillers for weeks but kept crying out in pain. And then the patient's daughter showed up in the emergency room with a life-threatening overdose of morphine and oxycodone. She was high on her mother's medication stolen from the hospice that issued the stash. Take us through your article. Yeah, so this case was described to me by Dr. Leslie Blackhall. She's a head of palliative medicine at the University of Virginia. And she was a supervising doctor in this case. It was an elderly woman who had metastatic breast cancer and was dying at home on hospice. And Dr. Blackhall was relying on reports from hospice nurses who were visiting the home. And the nurses kept saying, look, this patient's in pain. So the doctor kept increasing the amount of painkillers that were being sent to the home. And this happened for several weeks and the patient was still in pain until finally The daughter shows up at the emergency room with an overdose, and they realize that the daughter had been stealing her mother's medications, and the mother wasn't getting any medications at all. And it ended up that once the mother was admitted to the hospital and getting just a small amount of pain medication, that her pain was under control. 
So Dr. Blackhole told me that this case really opened her eyes to this problem and to the fact that patients can really suffer when their medications end up in the wrong hands. Well, and this is tricky because hospices have largely been exempt from the national crackdown on opioid prescriptions because many dying people, they might need high doses of opioids, so it makes it hard. Right. So I think most people agree that hospice patients are not out shopping around for opioids they don't need. Um, Half of them are in hospice for just two weeks or less. So they're close to death. They have frail bones. They have bed sores. They may have metastatic cancer, shortness of breath. They're really, really sick, and these pain medications are effective and appropriate for many of them. Yeah, so this makes it for a tricky conversation because at the same time, we don't want to deny these folks their medications that are going to help, um, but it makes it difficult. So uh, you found in, in the research of this that caregivers and family members are taking the drugs. So what happens then with the patient's pain? Yeah, so I think one of the saddest repercussions is that the patient is at home and, you know, the pain medications are being prescribed, but they're not actually getting them or not getting enough, and that their caregiver who's struggling with addiction is actually taking them instead of the patient. And the hospice doctor is sending the medications there. They're just not getting through to them. So in some cases, this is because hospice staff are stealing medications, and sometimes you see legal intervention in court cases. But I think the much harder thing to handle is when a relative or neighbor is stealing his medications. The patient may not even know, you know, the, the person they're entrusting to keep them healthy and comfortable may be the person who's also taking the medications. And I talked to a woman, after I wrote this article, she wrote me an email and she said, that her brother, who had struggled on and off with addiction, she actually saw her brother stealing the medications from her mother. And she said she didn't want to call the authorities. She didn't want to create this huge like blowout of a family conflict. She wanted a peaceful death for her mother. But at the same time, she's just tormented by knowing that her mother's medications were going to someone else. Right. And I like the way you frame it, where you're saying that people are struggling with Addiction, I think, especially in the the current judicial climate, sometimes this is viewed as just a criminal act. But, you know, if you're taking your mother's pain medications, you have some issues you're struggling with yourself. This isn't just, you know, burglary or theft. It's, it's, It's a whole picture here where the people that are taking these medications need support and help themselves. Uh, you know, hospice, which is available to patients who are expected to die within six months, is seeing a dramatic rise in enrollment as more patients choose to focus on comfort instead of cure at the end of life. So this is a good thing. We don't want to turn people off of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's hospice is a wonderful service to people who don't want to die a miserable death in the hospital and who really want to focus on comfort and be surrounded by people they love. It's a wonderful trend. It just it seems like it's irresponsible to ignore this risk of theft of medications in this context. And there are some some recommendations on how to monitor it better. Yes, and and we're going to get to those. Um, As somebody who works for hospice, um, this is a difficult topic for me to talk about because I do see it, and and we have seen this, and we have um, instituted lockboxes in patients' homes uh, when we know that there is a family member who is struggling. 
Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's a very difficult issue. So most prescribed medications for hospice patients are your oxycodone, your morphine, methadone, fentanyl patches. And unfortunately, these are the drugs out there that are causing that most so many people are addicted to. So it's a it's a very difficult um, balancing act that hospices have to navigate. It, it was really hard for me in reporting the story to figure out the most prescribed medications for hospice because Medicare, even though Medicare pays for almost you know the vast majority of hospice, they don't actually release data on what drugs that pays for. Um, but the best information I had was from Inclara Pharmacia, one of the largest hospice drug providers in the country. And they said, yeah, liquid morphine is the most common. Um, morphine in a pill form, I think, was number three. But they, they said that OxyContin, which is one of the most widely misused drugs nationwide, is actually not very common in hospice because it's, it's true. the brand name drug and it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but fentanyl patches, as you mentioned, are also very common. And so talk about some of the measures that hospices around the country are taking to curb this problem uh, and ensure that the patients are getting what they need. So as Casey mentioned, um, locked boxes for medication are a common solution. Although I saw one one of the cases I read in these inspection reports described a family member. It was a, a patient dying at home in a situation where their drugs were being stolen and she had entrusted the key to this locked box to her nephew, that her nephew ended up in jail, and then so she couldn't have access to her medications. So she had to find another person to take care of this locked box. So it's never straightforward. But um, certainly locked boxes for medication and having a person you trust to take care of that key is important. Other solutions are limiting the number of days of medication that is delivered to the home at once. So two weeks is about the standard, but some in some cases people have told me they'll just do like three or four days if they really think the medications are at risk of being stolen. Other options are using drugs like methadone, which don't have a high, they're harder to misuse, and um, counting the pills every time a nurse visits the house. So those are some of the more common measures. Some hospice directors I interviewed were taking further measures. Um, They said, because this epidemic is really affecting everyone, rich and poor, cutting across demographic lines, you really can't make assumptions about who might be at risk of stealing medications. So they actually suggest screening all patients and families, asking everyone if there's a history of drug misuse uh, in the family, and then actually writing out agreements, which sometimes in hospices will do this with every family, saying, what's the family's responsibility? What happens if the medications go missing? And then what's the consequence, obviously, if the medications do end up in the wrong hands? And, you know, that's also very difficult because at the end of life, um, you know, and in one of the hospices I worked for, this was an issue and this contract was set up. And it was difficult for me as a nurse because the patient had a history of drug use in her past and Mm -hmm. uh, therefore was needing more um, drugs to control her pain anyway. Um, it, it was a hard juxtaposition because if ever there was a time I wanted this woman to be pain-free, it was now at the end of life. And it's just a very difficult balancing act that we do. It's the same with interviewing family members and asking about their drug histories. Very difficult time when you're already in the home talking about the death of their loved one 
and that mm-hmm. you want to help them with that, then going into their personal history about drug use, is it's, it's a very tough balancing act that we have in hospice. Yeah, one other response I heard from hospice workers was that they don't want to be the police. I mean, they want to be there for the emotional support of the family and that sometimes these thefts just put them in a very uncomfortable place. Exactly. That, that can also be hard. This is a great topic, and I'm glad that you are addressing it because it is a growing problem in hospices. As being on the side of the hospice employee, it's a tough one to address because it's such a tender time in a family's life. But it's mm-hmm. important that we talk about it so that people are aware. Yes. Well, thanks for this great article, Melissa, and all the work you're doing on behalf of these critical issues. We've been talking with Melissa Bailey. Melissa is a correspondent for Kaiser Health News, and her article is Dying at Home in an Opioid Crisis, Hospice Grapples with Stolen Meds. For more information about this topic, visit nursetalksite.com or khn.org. You're listening to Nurse Talk Radio. Stay with us for Healthcare in America with Donna Smith. Will you be covered if you have a pre-existing condition? You're listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine. Do you ever wonder what your healthcare premiums do pay for? Well, a big chunk of your money goes to marketing, advertising, lobbyists, outrageous salaries. Oh, yeah, profits. Imagine if all the money you pay every month just went to healthcare. Maybe then all of your healthcare needs would be covered all the time. We need California One Care. More for you, less for them. California One Care. Full care for all for less. Hey, Casey, say that part where they won't sue us. <laughs> we are nurses. We cannot diagnose, prescribe, or treat, but we can give good advice. <laughs> Welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with the executive producer, Patty Lockard, who's sitting in for Shane Mason. Healthcare in America is coming right up, but let's slow things down a little bit with some advice from wise Mary Maxwell. From Sandra in Fort Worth comes this query. Dear Mary, I recently inherited a little bit of money when my sister passed away. I would like to use it to upgrade our kitchen, which hasn't seen a new appliance since Ford was in office. My husband wants to go on a vacation. He keeps telling me it could be our last vacation, but he's always been a little dramatic. Will you be a tiebreaker on this one? Wow. Your husband says this might be your last vacation. That sounds a little sinister. I'd be nervous about getting in a car with him. I'm just saying. Seriously, I don't know what a little bit of money is, but if it's enough to upgrade a kitchen that hasn't changed in more than 34 years, I'm guessing it's several thousand dollars. So you know what? You can do both. Get that granite and stainless steel upgrade going tomorrow. Then take a vacation. Although I have to tell you, I was just in Fort Worth, and I don't know why anyone would want to go somewhere else to have fun. They were swimming in their outdoor pools in October. If you don't want to spend a lot of money on a vacation, I might suggest that you travel to Omaha, where I live. We have air conditioning in the summer and heat in the winter. We have a world-class zoo, 
and we have so many good restaurants that we feel it is our civic duty to go out to dinner three times a week. We'd love to have you, and it would be a lot cheaper than, say, Marco Island, and not as humid. Thanks for writing, Sandra. That music can mean only one thing. It's time for Donna Smith and Healthcare in America. Donna, welcome. Always great to hear your voice. Thanks so much. I want to go to Omaha. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Well, that's why you're in need of the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> that's right. Isn't that the truth? There better be mental health parity in that, too. Indeed. <laughs> so, Donna, let's talk about the latest push to scrap the Affordable Care Act once and for all as Republican-controlled states asked a federal judge to finish what Congress started last year and bring the law that ensures 20 million Americans to a halt. Yeah, I mean this is a this is really a travesty on top of all the other Boy, travesties sure in the healthcare arena. A federal judge in Texas is currently uh, mulling over a plan to do away with the pre-existing condition protections that the Affordable Care Act put in place. Essentially, 18 attorneys general, along with two governors of conservative states, as you might imagine appealed to the court to because they felt that if certain parts of the Affordable Care Act had been found unconstitutional, like the mandate to buy insurance, then of course the pre-existing condition clause must be unconstitutional as well, at least was the argument. Why about the pre-existing condition? Why would they want to get rid of that? Is Am I missing well, something I here? Think they, no, I think they. you're not missing anything, except that I think they believe that this would be the death knoll for the Affordable Care Act for, you know, they don't like to call it the Affordable Care Act. They love to call it Obamacare because, of course, anything they attach to Obama, they feel like they can get rid of, even though the American public, an overwhelming percentage of the American public, up to 87 percent, support the pre-existing condition clause of the Affordable Care Act. So this is really messing with a part of that law that is extremely popular and for good reason with people in this country. It's just so mean-spirited. So when will we know the outcome of this particular case? Any day. You know, what's really telling about it, though, is the Trump administration is so worried about how this will go if it goes in their favor, that they're asking the judge not to implement any changes immediately. And you know why? Because they don't want the American people to react before the election. They certainly would, too. Right. And that that works for our Democratic Beto, the man who's running against Ted Cruz. That's a a high cost to pay. It's an extremely high cost to pay. But I hope Texans get out there and vote because... Their governor and their state legislature wants to do away with the Affordable Care Act. They want to kill what's remaining of it. Well, Absolutely. Be, yeah. And Beto would be so preferable to Ted Cruz on so many levels. On so many but levels. But this would also be a tremendous lesson to send to the rest of the Republicans who seem to think it's a good idea to do in uh, health care. Donna, uh, Donna, what could this end up in the Supreme Court? Could this case end up in the Supreme Court? And if so, yes. what do we think would happen there? Uh, ho, ho, boy, well, that just we depends on who gets panel, on the court. You know, the yeah. latest gets on the court, and it looks like he probably will, then that the Affordable Care Act will face the same fate that Roe versus Wade does or any of the other things that we're all extremely concerned about coming before the high court right at the moment. So this couldn't be more important. And 
if we tie all of this to who is currently in office, I think it's easy to see why it matters who we vote for, and it matters in a big way. In a real big way. So speaking of the Supreme Court and the overall impact, what do you think the overall impact will be on U.S. health care if Kavanaugh gets in and we have now a, a very conservative court? Well, of course, the obvious is, you know, with that particular case would be that the uh, pre-existing condition clause would go. Now, any other issue that relates to the Affordable Care Act that might make its way, wend its way to the Supreme Court, and there are lots of cases all over the country that are currently in lower courts are about the Affordable Care Act. Not all of them have any potential to make it to the Supreme Court, but certainly if they do, we can expect that Brett Kavanaugh would be one of the deciding votes that would make it less likely that we would keep people covered with health care. And what's so sad about that is that they don't have anything to replace it. So they simply want to do away with this and wipe out 20 million Americans' health care. Well, exactly. And weaken so much of what's available to the rest of us. Because if anyone thinks just because you're not covered by a plan on the exchange that it won't matter to you if the Affordable Care Act is touched, think again. Just because you don't purchase your insurance on the exchange doesn't mean that the provisions covering insurance plans aren't aren't followed by all of the plans that are sold in this country or had been sold until they started to weaken the Affordable Care Act. So we already are seeing a weakening of what insurance companies are required to offer in their plans, and that will only get much worse. So this is problematic on a number of levels. Some providers are even fighting it. Now, you know if providers are fighting it, that it's a bad thing for health care. Well, Donna, how soon would we see the impact uh, and what health care related cases or what other health care related cases might be brought to the court in the coming session? Are, is there anything else we should look for besides this, the ACA or? Probably not during the fall term because the court is actually, the Supreme Court already has the cases before it that they would decide during this particular term. But in the next term, we could see things coming before the court that relate to the percentage of, for instance, if you remember back to when the Affordable Care Act was passed and they had to put a certain percentage of every dollar taken in back into health care, the insurance companies were limited by how much they were supposed to spend. That is something else that's being challenged in court right at the moment. We don't know if it will make its way up the line to be heard in by the Supreme Court, but it's possible that that particular law, if you remember very early on, some people were even getting uh, minuscule refunds from their insurance companies because it was determined yeah. that the insurance company spent too much on at advertising and administration, and all of those things. Well, we don't want to go backwards to the days when none of that was watched. We don't want that to happen for anyone. We don't want to have open-ended co-pays and high deductibles, you know, the Affordable Care Act limits how much the deductibles can be for an individual, how much the co-pays can be in a given year. If those provisions go away as they're being challenged in lower courts, if those make it up higher and they go away, then, you know, this that law will eventually be killed. I don't Which think people so know sad. the impact that the ACA has had on. on no, they won't. And they won't know it until, until it's gone. Until it's gone yeah. As usual. Yep. So, yep. OK, it's one more in. 
One more issue, Donna, that weighs heavy on so many. Last week, ProPublica investigated life inside one of the nation's largest shelter of networks for unaccompanied minors defined by tedium and despair. Can you give us an overview of the article and tell people where they can read it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You'll find it, of course, ProPublica, and you can also, a nurse talk will be uh, posting it on the website and so forth. But the sad fact of the story is we've got children and uh, young adults, teenagers, who are being held by our Homeland Security and Department of uh, Immigration in these terrible facilities. Not all of them are terrible facilities, but imagine being held for months and months at, at a time, being a very young person or a child, and you don't know what's happening to you. You don't speak the language in this country. You don't have relatives with you. We're seeing a lot of these children and, and young adults with serious depression, serious anxiety, some of them suicidal. We've already had a couple of suicides in some of these shelters. This is a travesty that's happening right now in our own country under the guise of doing what's right for America. I don't know very many people in my circle of friends who think any of this is right. It's, it's so totally wrong and so totally adverse to anything we believe as Americans. And I would ask everybody who cares about children, about common decency, about justice, to call your senators and your representatives and say, you don't want children held in these facilities anymore. There must be a more humane way to deal with this. First of all, reunite all the families that have been split up. And if there are situations where the children don't have anyone, to care for them, please, for goodness sakes, don't hold them in what's essentially a prison facility while you decide what to do with them. They're not animals. They are human beings. They are kids. They deserve to be treated well. It is so glaringly sad that here in one of the richest countries on this planet, we are busy locking up kids and keeping them away from their parents only because they're immigrants. Yeah, it's it's seeking asylum in most front. cases. Yeah, it's it's just not what this country was founded on. And I dare say the bulk of Americans do not agree with this policy, do not agree with this president when it comes to locking up children and separating families. It's just not right. Not at all. No, it's just glaring and it's terrible. Do we know how many of these shelters are around the country? I was shocked to know that they were they were here before even the Trump administration. But now I know that they've they've added to them. Oh, there's thousands. And what I what's didn't have hard any to idea. nail down, what's really hard to nail down is how many private facilities are now in use. You know, there of course it's just like private prisons. There's been a proliferation since uh, Trump was elected in 2016 of private companies just all too anxious to further this policy of of housing immigrant people basically as prisoners. You know, for instance, here in my own uh, hometown of Denver right at the moment, we didn't even know. We we had no idea there were six or seven facilities operating in the Denver area, some for families, some for uh, one of them is for uh, women by themselves. Others are for men by themselves. Some are temporary facilities. Some are considered longer term. I don't think most Americans are aware of how many of these are sitting all over the country. Thousands of them where people are being warehoused 
Now, I do understand that there are some situations where someone comes to this country and it may not be desirable for that individual to be here. But that is such an isolated, small number of the people who actually end up being picked up by ICE and sent out of the country. You know, the vast majority of people are here are not here to do us any harm or or cause any problems. They came here because they were fleeing something truly terrible in their own country and believed that there was a better way in this country. Well, they're certainly finding out maybe they didn't, maybe there wasn't something better in this country, at least not for them. And the, and the sad thing is to remember that this is not a felony. Coming across the border illegally, and for many of them, they weren't illegal. Well, they're they, seeking asylum. They refused to grant them to... asylum and say that it's illegal. But it's a misdemeanor, kids. It's a misdemeanor. Nobody should be yep. locked up for this kind of a quote-unquote crime. Let's contrast that with some of what our congressional members have done, oh. What's what our, what our president <laughs> has done, for God's sakes. And these people are not being locked up anywhere. Yeah, you know, with it no is. end in sight. It is clearly sad. Yep. So, Donna, yep. it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And, of course, Donna, Likewise. you will be voting, correct, in November, and everybody you <laughs> oh, know and everybody yeah. I know and everybody Nurse Talk talks to are going to be voting. Absolutely. You tell everyone, even if you, you think someone usually votes, this isn't the year for you think somebody votes. That's this right. This is the year for all of us to, to, to remind each other, you must vote. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. Also, I wanted to say, if you want more information about these topics, visit our website at nursedocsite.com or nationalnursesunited.org. Or to read this riveting article about the shelter network, go to propublica.org. We've been talking with national healthcare activist and author Donna Smith. Always a pleasure, Donna. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our executive producer, Patty Lockard. Sound design and engineering, June Miller and JMC Sound. Taylor Lockard Research. And National Nurses United and all the nurses on duty today. And of course, our listeners and guests. Take care and visit us at nursetalksite.com or like our Facebook page at Nurse Talk.